Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. I'm Robin, and today we will be discussing Chapter 6, The Spy. Today's coffee is called Mind, Body, and Soul. It's an organic blend from Equal Exchange. The official description of this blend is mellow and smooth, nutty, with tasting notes of milk chocolate and vanilla. I decided to actually brew this one in the French press that I have rather than just putting it through the, the coffee maker. Being at home so much from the, the pandemic, I got more in the habit of brewing coffee through the just the drip machine because I was drinking so much more coffee here and not going out as much. But yeah, I, I really I'm really, really enjoying it. And of course, now that we've acquired coffee, let's proceed with contemplation. This actually might be one of my favorite, like, first couple of moments. Black screen and all you hear is just sound, which conveys the information and the events of getting Will from the field to Hawkins' lab. It allows us to, like, skip over the toing and froing with just a few sound effects. We can, we can just start visually at the lab and dive into what really, I think, matters more narratively. A really smart way to get you into this super intense moment considering that we ended on such an intense beat to kind of give you like this like little bit of pad before you jump into this really emotionally draining first moment it doesn't take up the entirety of the cold open but it's 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 a hell of a place to start regardless of whether or not the burn the actions of the lab is actually only physically hurting the shadow monster, Will is still feeling it. And this is important to note, given how the season concludes, what they have to go through to get the shadow monster out of him. Dude, though, that shot of Joyce and Bob pretty much brings me to tears every time I see it. Amidst all of this chaos, though, we hard cut to Steve and Dustin in Steve's car. Steve himself is expressing some doubt about the danger of Dart and what's actually going on. And I kind of found myself wondering this, this time if his skepticism kind of reflects or is echoed in Max's skepticism. Even within this little sort of subgroup, they, they are sort of both the outsiders because you have this very close-knit community between Lucas, Dustin, and Mike, and also Will. You don't have Mike there. You don't have Will there. But even though Steve and Dustin bond surprisingly quickly, and then you have Lucas and Max who are forming this relationship, they are all kind of a little out of their depth and they are forming this sort of new little subgroup. I found moving forward that it this was the first of many instances where I kind of went, huh, actually Steve and Max kind of have this in common. They're both athletic. So much of this episode is Max being skeptical and being like, are you sure? And that's literally what Steve is asking here. Like, how big did this thing get? How do you know it wasn't something else? And then, of course, Dustin insists because his face opened up and he ate my cat. And I like the pause just long enough before Steve nods and goes, yeah, all right. It's hilarious. And of course, this scene concludes with the uh, what I consider to be the famous shot of Steve being a badass just by tossing dust in the keys without looking, getting the spiky bat out of the trunk, and then him closing the trunk. Yeah. I I have no real scholarly analysis to add to this or filmmakery perspective. I just I just like it. I'm a fan. I mean, that's we've that's been established up to this point and with that continues. Why it works, I don't I don't know. Partly it's Kiri, partly it's the cinematography, and partly it's the rock and soundtrack all mixing together for one of I'll just go ahead and say it, one of my favorite moments. I look for this is this is another one of those moments I look forward to on every rewatch. 
And also kind of random, but Steve listens to Queen? I would never have guessed that, and I find it kind of impressive. But as that song ends, Steve approaches the cellar and hits the doors a couple times, but all is quiet and still. I don't hear shit, he says. And mildly threatens Dustin if this is some sort of Halloween prank, but Dustin is like, it's not, I promise. Get that out of my face. And, you know, I'm laughing here, but joking aside, I really treasure moments like this in season two because we won't get them again. They've all flown by this age range, and even though the age gap remains the same, Dustin is still young enough here, they all are, that we get these interactions where Steve gets to be, for lack of a better expression, kind of the big kid that they rely on. I mean, yeah, yeah, we get the damn good babysitter line later, but like, for real, this was such a short window in these characters' lives. And I'm not, I'm not jaded or resistant to what comes next or how they grow past this. But again, I just really treasure this particular time period and these, these specific kind of interactions and dynamics is maybe a better way to say it, from the broad strokes to these individual moments, like like the wobbly flashlight, you know, the beam shaking due to Dustin's hand shaking because he's scared. You know, his line of, I'll, I'll stay up here in case he tries to escape. And it also must be said, as Heidi indeed pointed out, that part of the reason that Dustin must trust Steve and put so much faith in his being able to protect Dustin and fight Dart is because Steve has fought a Demogorgon before and will again take on the Demodogs in this episode. So even though we joked last season about how the dude you want to fight joke is annoying, but Dustin wasn't there, so he doesn't know. Well, this scene makes me question that, because unless it really is just the you're older than me and an athlete, and so therefore you're more equipped to deal with this threat than I am, I, I, I prefer to think it's because how he knew what happened at the, with the teenage trio at the pre- in the previous year. And so, like I said, that's a factor in him being more trusting of Steve. And in this moment, Steve descends the cellar stairs and finds the oozing shed skin and a hole in the wall, which elicits two oh-shit declarations from Dustin. And after a drawing back shot that eventually winds up in a bird's-eye view of Hawkins, we get our title sequence. This episode again directed by Andrew Stanton. Hell yeah. This is another long cold open. They could have very easily cut after the, the stuff with Will in the lab. They've done stuff like that before. They didn't need to draw it out this long. But I also think that kind of getting a sense of the two... I mean, yeah, you have Jonathan and Nancy, their subplot going on, but I think the kids and Steve, the Dart storyline, and then the Hawkins Lab storyline, those are kind of the two primary like focuses of this episode. And so I think introducing them both at, this, at the top was, was wise. And speaking of Hawkins Lab, we come out of the cold open... We see the Hawkins lab goons swarming the buyer's home, and they're taking lots of photos. And despite what I've been saying about the recalibration of some of their motivations, this still really creeps me out. Like, this doesn't have that, like, kind of change of energy that it did, like, at the end of Dig Dug. And I, I think that's a good thing, that there's push and pull there. In a conference room, Joyce demands that Will be transferred to a real hospital, but they insist that he's getting the best care there. It's probably somewhat true, but is their interest here primarily in keeping all of this secret? Yeah, probably. There'd be no way to fully explain Will's condition without something leaking, right? To at least hospital staff. I mean, maybe not, but that's likely what their concern is. And if so, should that override Will's best medical interest? Hell no. 
At the same time, that does lead me to wonder, as a side effect of that impulse on the lab's part, is it also somewhat in their best interest? Wills, Joyce's. That's a big statement, I know, but hear me out. All other possibilities aside, the lab doesn't need to be brought up to speed on Will's condition. They know it already. They know more than they actually tell Joyce, honestly. And they can do research and run tests right there in the facility that other hospitals might not. So to some degree, the he gets the best medical care here. I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but it certainly has its advantages. That said, it does also prompt the question, not unlike a few episodes ago, what would have changed, if anything, if Will had been transferred? You know, there's no way to know. Not really. And he's clearly already mostly possessed at this point, so it may have just changed the who and the how of the damage, not the outcome specifically. Meaning that Joyce, Hopper, Bob, and Mike may just not have been there and may not have even known when all the carnage started, which is both a dark thought and also kind of bittersweet because Bob may not have died in that scenario. Anyway, I also, I like the slightly meta moment here when Joyce calls them out for being about to tell her to stay calm. It strikes me as a deliberate subversion of many of the moments from season one, many of which we talked about on the podcast. And of course, the low angle on Joyce overlooking the table of men paired with the high angle shot of them all looking uncertain. It just, it's magnificent. Not to mention that Joyce is ferocious here. No trembling voice, just absolutely putting them in their place, demanding better. And demanding answers, frankly. In Murray's bunker, meanwhile, he, Nancy, and Jonathan form an assembly line, copying cassette tapes and creating packages to send off to major news outlets. Newspapers, anyway. After which, the three of them listen to jazz and enjoy some vodka together. They start talking about driving home, and Murray offers them the crash there for the night. But when Jonathan asks about using the sofa to sleep on, Murray, confused, begins questioning their relationship. He calls their label of just friends their first lie of the evening. Quote, you've got chemistry, history, plus the real shit, shared trauma. And through the sequence, Murray pegs both Jonathan and Nancy's inner demons, Jonathan's trust issues and Nancy's fear of her real self and what she really wants. This bit struck me as an evolution of the very conversation between Nancy and Jonathan last season after their target practice with the cans in the field. And maybe that's crazy obvious to everyone else, but I'd never considered it before. I've always been very wrapped up in the comedy of the moment, the sort of whimsy of Murray's razor-sharp, quote, curse to see so clearly. I mean, it's basically a deus ex machina. Like, he just drops this information into the scene. I mean, it's not exactly exposition, but it has that ring to it. And it's ostensibly what gets them together in a couple of scenes. Like, ham-fisted, heavy-handed, like, I I don't know, kind of take your pick of of these terms, but yeah, it doesn't bother me. Possibly because the same stuff is obvious to us as viewers, even though we have the advantage of witnessing their relationship development all last season while Murray just met them. And possibly because Murray is also a conspiracy theorist who was used to reading people closely, overanalyzing, etc. I mean, it's hella convenient, but this is one of those occasions where I guess I just don't care. It just, if it is a case of the script being a bit blunt, like in the actual writing, Brett Gelman's delivery as Murray really elevates it. And also, in crediting him there, I realize I haven't given Gelman a proper shout out yet. And for that, I am so sorry. I'm going to say his name again, Brett Gelman as Murray. Thank you so much for Murray, sir. He is terrific. Especially on his close-ups between his dialogue, i.e. when Nancy or Jonathan are speaking, 
he never seems condescending or smug. I mean, certainly not to like a self-righteous degree. And I think that is what makes him likable as a character, even if he can be a little grating sometimes. You know, he could easily have played this like, sure, sure, I'm smarter than you. Like looking super self-satisfied. And there's a little bit of that, particularly in the scene the next morning. But he does seem to be listening to them. Like, it's not like he just decides something and then he tunes out everything they say or, like, has a ready answer. I mean, he kind of does, but he's present in the scene. And I also think that he's genuinely surprised that they were in such heavy denial. And this could also be Stan's directing at play as well. But Murray lands a few more zingers, including the, we like Steve, but we don't love Steve. And if I were you, I'd cut the bullshit and share the damn bed. All of that, of course, makes Jonathan and Nancy stew over it, though his words, <laughs> compelling them both to come out of their rooms and meet in the living room to, to mutually scoff at what he has said. And I always anticipate that the scene ends after Jonathan slides the study door closed, because the background music ends at the same time. It's been sort of flowing through the first cut into that location. So I expect it to cut away when the music ends, back to another group, but it doesn't. We stay with Jonathan, who shuts off the light, as we cut back to Nancy, who still sits up, looking kind of determined, in fact. And then she jumps up, she throws open the door to find Jonathan right there. The briefest hesitation, and then they finally, finally cross that inevitable line, kissing and backing into the guest room. I stand by everything that Heidi and I both said about the scene between Nancy and Steve last season, how consensual it was, how beautiful it was portrayed, how believable it was, and meaningful it was, down to the subtext of the poster behind Nancy and then her in front of it. But I really do admire the way this scene feels so different, so much like an evolution as far as relationship dynamics go, and how much a different kind of connection this is. Not better. Not worse. Different. And yes, this is pent-up sexual tension, but it's also a kind of final acceptance of all the things that Marie said. Their chemistry, yes, but also their history and indeed that shared trauma. And I really admire that and the way that that's done non-verbally. You know, a lot of the shots of them in the first time that they meet in the, in the living room, it's a slightly wider shot. There's You get more a sense of space between them. And then when they meet in front of the door... It's a very close shot. You feel the space being minimized between them. The only thing that kind of muddles the water here is the we were on a break question. Whether or not Nancy and Steve are technically still together at this point. Granted, I think it's clear that Nancy has checked out of that relationship, at least romantically, and that the last she and Steve saw of each other, he walked away going, you're bullshit, after she couldn't say that she loved him. You know, Steve heard that she went off with Jonathan after their fight. It all seems like writing on the wall, but still, I want to circle back to this moment when we get to the damn good babysitter scene. <laughs> and the scene is playfully concluded with another of those L cuts that I talked about last time, where we hear the audio of the next scene before we cut to Erica in her room uh, playing with Lucas's He-Man action figure in one of her Barbies. I think. I think it's a Barbie. But a, a doll. You hear the the sounds that she's making of them kissing before you cut away from the closed door of Jonathan and Nancy of, of Murray's guest room. It's just, it's cute. It's playful. I thought that was a cute little touch. And when Lucas discovers Erica playing with these two, these two toys, he takes his He-Man back and demands that she stay out of his room, to which she counters that Dustin should keep his mouth shut. Code red, Lucas, code red. 
bunch of nerds. I love how that this plays out next season with the whole nerd thing. I love it. It's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to talking about that. Of course, Lucas kind of panics here and runs back into his room and turns on his radio again, finally reaching Dustin. And Dustin doesn't really fill him in. He's just like kind of gives him the headlines and then says, meet me and Steve at the junkyard. Back at the lab, Hopper is having a bad day. He's puking again. But Owen tells him that he's been cleared. And more than that, Owens takes him downstairs to get his and our first full and complete look at the gate along with the tunnels, which ultimately gives us a sense of just how dire and how exponential this problem has become. The situation has has grown to. Owen says some stuff that echoes Mr. Clark's words from a few episodes ago about the need to survive. Meanwhile, Joyce and Bob have probably their first fully honest conversation about Will and their family. And Bob tells Joyce to, you know, not worry about him. Don't start worrying about him. You know, he's fine. And Joyce tells Bob that his idea of going to Maine isn't crazy at all. And I really wonder what the rest of that conversation would have been. But that's when Will stirs. And he doesn't remember Bob. From there, we pivot back to breakfast at Murray's. (laughs) And Murray clearly knows, or at least guesses, at what happened. And there are many outtakes of this scene in the gag reel where all three of them struggle to ke- to get through the scene without laughing. And I think it's pretty clear why. Jonathan and Nancy, though, prepare to go home, and apparently no one is picking up at the buyer's house. Weird. Murray gives them some parting gifts of vodka and water. He tells them to keep their eyes on the papers before basically saying, never reach out to me again, quite literally slamming the door in their face. Back in Hawkins, Lucas bikes over to Max's house, following up on what I said back in Chapter 2 in Trick or Treat Freak, when he probably finds the house based on knowing the road, because Max mentioned it, and also recognizing Billy's car. Inside the house, Billy is smoking and lifting weights at the same time, which seems kind of productive to me. In her room, Max is taping up her broken skateboard until Billy shouts at her to get the door. Swear to God, Max! She shuffles outside, closing the door behind her so Billy doesn't see that Lucas is the one who's been knocking, who's been ringing the bell, rather, because he is there to offer her proof of his story. I love the setup of this, because before we can hear what Lucas is offer, actually offering, what, what, he, what plan he has in place, the, the scene itself cuts back to inside Billy starting to get suspicious, you know, leaning into the musical score over the diegetic music that he's listening to. And he sort of narrows his focus on the door and starts moving towards it when Max comes back in, closing the door behind her. And she tries to sneak by him, but unsuccessfully. And she tells him that it was Mormons, talkative ones. And it seems obvious that she's making it up. And on my first watch, I was yelling, lie better! (laughs) However, I would call this an excellent use of persuasion or even deception. Because the idea is clearly to make Billy suspicious, so that he will then go and check the door for himself, which he does, so that Max is clear to go sneak out the back window. Brilliant! She hops on Lucas's bike, and away they go. Once again, at the lab, Owens talks with Will, and they test his memory, which is shaky at best. Will tells Owens that they hurt him, the soldiers. They shouldn't have done that. It upset him. So they then do a test by using a blowtorch or some such device, on one of the severed tentacles from the tunnels, I'm guessing, 
and Will absolutely feels the heat. Joy shouts, you know, that's enough, helped <laughs> helped out with a loud and somewhat necessary assist from Hopper. And I have to say, like, on this rewatch, it was kind of nice to kind of have the, that group back together, like, to have Joyce and Hopper, like, in the same room, like, to have him. It feels like we've been kind of without Hopper for a while, because we, we have, really. He's been sort of out of commission because he's been trapped, and even when he, before he got, you know, tra- trapped in the, the floor in the tunnels, he was still by himself. And... You know, he was with Elle before that, so it's just kind of nice to have him back, like, in the thick of things. I'm sure that's a hot take. Owens then pulls Joyce and Hopper out into the hallway and starts breaking down his theory that Will has this virus that's part of this, like, hive intelligence, and that the virus connects all the hosts, and this is where they use flashbacks. Yeah, it's one of the few examples where I hate how they do use them. These are strictly for us. Like, the scenes that are flashed through here, they're not ones at all that Joyce or Hopper or Owens would have any knowledge of. They were not witnessed any of these. I mean, the one of of Will puking up what ostensibly is Dart into the sink, like, no one was there for that. And that's just the one. Like with the flashbacks used in the nursery with Becky in season one, I don't think we needed these. It feels oddly spoon-feedy to me. Or at least if you're going to do the flashbacks, then give us ones that, like many others that they've used, represent one or all three of these characters' thought patterns, like what they're thinking about. That's usually where the flashbacks work so well, so it surprises me that they went this route. Maybe it's a case of the scene really didn't feel right in a cut without them. That's certainly understandable. I've been there. And perhaps the rhythm of or flow of the scene just didn't work somehow. So they they that's why they dropped them in. And they didn't have enough that would have worked that would have been reflective of the character's inner, you know, inner monologue or thought. But even if that were the case, I kind of wish they hadn't. And I wish they had found some other way to change the pacing instead. Heidi made a comment. She asked why Bob isn't there. And my guess is that it's because they really only meant for Joyce to know as Will's mother and that the only reason Hopper gets to be there too is because he's the chief of police and he's been out, he's been part of the investigation all along. You know, in fact, it was Hopper that brought the rotting farms to their attention, at least as far as we know. I mean, they could have been looking into it already or they would have found out about it, but I give Hopper credit for that one. Joyce asks, what happens when my boy is gone? Which Owens can't answer. And this is such a fascinating inverse to me of season one. Will went missing right at the beginning in basically the blink of an eye. And he was gone the entire season, just missing for except for these like few very, very, very brief flashes where they made contact with him. But here, Will is very much still physically present and they're losing him, but slowly, incrementally. And they're not even sure how much or in what fashion. I mean, they kind of know a little more now based on this new development, but the slow burn of him just slipping away and not knowing when he'll be gone for good, it's just such a variation from last season. This is a really good example of how the season is not just a step and repeat of last time. And yeah, I mean, it's a pretty hard swing in the opposite direction, but I like that difference. I know that's not the case for everybody, but that's where I stand on it. And coming out of that intense moment, though, we get the much-beloved train track scene. 
where Dustin and Steve drop the trail of meat along those tracks while Steve proceeds to give Dustin less than awesome dating advice. (laughs) There's been a lot said about this scene, so I don't want to linger on this too long other than to be the umpteenth person to say that I I really enjoy this scene. It's not it's not one of my favorite Dustin and Steve interactions, but I do enjoy it. The one sort of unique perspective I have on it though is that the media company that I work for, we were asked to do a presentation about filmmaking to a middle school class uh, that a friend of mine teaches. And so one of the things that one of the many things that we talked about in that presentation was shot composition and what the the many different kinds of shots are extreme wide wide shot medium shot medium close up close up extreme close up high angle and low angle the 180 degree rule when you imagine the, the there's a 180 degree line between two people in a conversation and wherever you put the camera for your establishing shot of this conversation the camera has to stay on that side of the line so that the eye lines don't change Uh, And before I worked for the company, they actually had done something very similar for a high school class many years before. And so we had gone through and we had gotten new examples of all of, of, of all of these things, new visual examples. And so I actually used this scene between Steve and Dustin to get screenshots from to demonstrate what the different shots are. There was such a plethora of shots to to choose from, but it was also like, of course, I'm going to try to find an example of that in Stranger Things. And I think I thought of the scene pretty early because even though it's kind of your standard shot reverse shot, it's still very compelling. And a lot of that is using a lot of these basic shot compositions really well. You know, and not every not every sequence in this show is going to do that, but I I think that may be one of the reasons why people, in addition to the content, you know, the actual exchange itself between these two characters, it looks really good. Does just because something is simple and something is you know kind of by the book, it doesn't mean that it can't be done well. On the day of the presentation, we were on whatever the previous slide was. And then we clicked ahead to this to this slide about the shot composition with these pictures. And I remember a very noticeable, audible reaction from the class. Just of recognition. Granted, in middle school was a bit of a surprise, but I, but it was just kind of neat to feel like I had really picked the right scene to use. But as far as the actual content of the scene goes, I asked Heidi how she would describe the reasons why this advice is so bad, because I kind of found myself at a bit of a loss why we don't hold this kind of shallow perspective against Steve. And her explanation was simply that the advice is to be cool, to be guarded, rather than to be honest and vulnerable, which is what, I mean, realistically, being in a relationship is all about. It's what it really means, and it's what it calls for. And also, when Dustin says, so that's when you kiss her, Steve doesn't say, yeah, man, go for it. He says, no, slow down, Romeo. You gotta read the room. Every girl is different. It's There is actually a little bit of good advice in here, <laughs> interspersed with the just, I think, general ignorance. And I would add as well that Steve is actually kind of circling around the notion of there's a person there. Steve then goes on to break down his hair routine, which, as regards the whole Farrah Fawcett spray aspect, I... <laughs> I reacted kind of candidly while watching it. I said, you know, it's almost like they're chemicals that aren't actually gendered. (laughs) But after this moment of levity, Hopper goes out to his truck and signals to Elle from his radio, eventually moving into an apology. And his speech is intercut with shots of the empty cabin, which we already know that Elle isn't there, but it really underscores the fact that seemingly his words aren't reaching her. And even though we will see 
next episode that she does hear all of this, I really like this moment because it feels like a representation of where he's at emotionally disconnected. Whereas by the time Elle does hear him next episode, it's during the process that is her change of heart. You know, she's at a point at that at that time where she wants to check in and she wants to reach out. And so she that's why she, you know, that's why she hears him. Inside the lab, the doctors uh, confer over, I guess they're not doctors, the scientists, confer over Will's medical state, over the rapid changes in his brain. And yet, despite this, they deliberate over continuing the burn, which would kill him. And Owen seems to be the only one in that room who doesn't want to just, or certainly doesn't seem willing to just callously throw away his Will's life. And as much as it's infuriating to watch, I do like how it sets Owens apart. And it gives us more reason to root for him later. None of our heroes are in this room. He has no reason to pretend here that he's invested in Will's life and Will's well-being. So his interest in doing what's right does seem to be real and trustworthy, even if some of his other ideals are a bit murky. Joyce, meanwhile, gets a little stir-crazy in the hospital room, and she takes off down the hall to try to get past the two guards who... But they block her, and an argument ensues between them. And Will watches creepily from the bed. And the sound design and the sound mixing amp up here. The point of view shots, the cutaways and close-ups of the guards' guns. We definitely get the sense that Will is thinking hard and that it may not be Will at all. But Mike snaps him out of it. And Will says that he saw something and he may know how to stop the shadow monster. The way this scene is framed, the way it's structured, cut, mixed, scored, it all seems like this is in earnest. And I would say that it's the show not playing fair, like those unnecessary cutaways, but it is. This is the shadow monster manipulating Mike through Will. It isn't like this is us being manipulated, overreaching past the characters. This is all very much played out in a way that I totally buy. I think it, it works completely. Steve and Dustin arrive at the junkyard, which Steve surveys and says, yeah, it'll do nicely. And I love the look of pride on Dustin's face that, you know, when he hears Steve's approval of, nice call, dude. It's just, it's another one of those sweet little moments. When Lucas and Max arrive, though, a little later, it only takes one look and his unanswered question of, who's that? For Steve to know that Max must be the girl Dustin was talking about. At least that's the way I read it. And I also kind of dig the way that Steve isn't accusatory or suspicious of this new person. He's just like, that person's new. Who is it? And because Max is new and hasn't been a part of the group, she's not in the know, presumably. It's just, it's a nice contrast to the way the kids have been so gatekeepery all season. This is when we get our conversation between Dustin and Lucas, in which they debate Lucas's decision to include Max and fill her in, as well as Dustin's mistake with Dart. While they watch Max do the physical labor of armoring up the bus, Lucas adds that she didn't believe him anyway. It must be you didn't tell it right, Dustin says. He's like, yeah, that must be it. And so he offers him his hand like, all right, so we good? And it seems like they're probably fine based on sort of the amiable expression on Dustin's face. But before they can actually shake hands, though, Steve interrupts them, demanding that they, you know, basically shake a leg. A couple of line delivery notes through this. I, A, love that Steve puts the emphasis on random instead of girl. Hey, dickheads, how come the only one helping me is this random girl? Which is kind of a bit of an odd way to say it, but it's a nice way to not other her, you know, for not being a dude. And B, I like the way that Dustin goes, all right, asshole, God. It just sounds so ridiculously natural and teenagery. I just, I love it. And then C, Steve knows the time of sundown. 
Now, perhaps Dustin told him off screen, but either way, he's aware of it and he's aware of how much work there is to do. His insistence feels like, hey, teammates, pull your weight. While also being like, dude, I'm here because you asked me. You don't just get to slack off. It is just them. You know, Dustin can't reach anyone else. So yeah, get moving, guys. I mean, we are talking about a baby Demogorgon because they don't know the term. They, Dustin hasn't coined the phrase, the phrase Demodog yet. And this is a problem that affected all of them last season. Like, this kind of goes beyond the, like, kids, I need you to help thing. This is like, guys, this is serious. Like, your friendship stuff, like, no, that can come later. We need to prepare. We only have so much time. We then see Jonathan and Nancy arrive at the buyer's house and find the place a complete mess. Jonathan's tone is instantly worried, and I mean, who's who wouldn't be? And he finds the Polaroid and knows that someone has been there. And especially coming off of their whole take down the lab escapade, this definitely would strike them as sinister. And this is inevitably what prompts them to go check out the lab. And realistically, this is the last we see of these two until chapter eight, the Mind Flayer. And at the lab, they lay out pictures of the tunnel map and Will essentially directs them to this one spot that the shadow monster doesn't want him to see. I think it's important. And dude, the first time I watched this season, I totally bought this. I just hook, line, and sinker. The look that Owens and Hopper share, I was right there with them. And we're supposed to. We have no reason to doubt Will at this point. I mean, yeah, the whole of the fact that we're seeing how much it's spreading through his brain, but this still seems like Will, and we're still playing off of the, well, you can be a spy for them. You can be a spy for us, that they talked about last episode. And of course, what this all means is that it is a 100% fully loaded, expertly laid trap. From whence, a montage plays out with back and forth between the lab and the junkyard with a uh, great piece of music. I didn't actually look up the title of this one, but I love the musical score through here. And each group is preparing for different events, both arming up and outfitting themselves and or their environment. What's curious, though, is that the lab characters are walking into a trap while Steve and the kids are setting a trap. The montage ends, and Lucas, ranger that he is, settles in a perch on top of the bus with his binoculars to keep lookout. Inside the bus, we get one of the only, if not the only, standalone one-on-one interaction between Max and Steve. She asks him if he's fought one of these things before, and in a somewhat understated and uncharacteristically modest answer, Steve just nods, flipping the lighter open and shut. And I am, of course, assuming that the reason he thought of this particular trap, this setup, is precisely because of when he fought the Demogorgon. He's mimicking the trap that Jonathan and Nancy set up with the bear trap and the fire. Max says, and you're like, totally 100% sure it wasn't a bear. But yeah, Dustin's outburst snaps at her, you know, don't be an idiot. He's like, why are you here if you don't believe us? Just go home. And that prompts a... (laughs) Equally snarky response from Max. Well, not equally, it's but it's snarky. You know, is it past your bedtime? And she climbs up to the roof to hang out with Lucas instead. Steve's like, that's good, I'm sure you don't care. And Dustin says that he doesn't. I kind of wonder if the look on Dustin's face when, she, when Max and Lucas got to the junkyard is proof that he means it. Not that he doesn't care, but she's clearly interested more in Lucas. So what's the point of trying to prove anything to her now? I'm definitely not saying that this is okay or good or whatever, but feel like I get it. I don't think that Dustin is actually doing the, like, I don't care disinterested thing. I think it's coming from a place of sort of disappointed resolve. I also like, though, that Max's reaction to (laughs) Dustin's behavior here is, like, (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, fine, be like that. You know, not that she's unfazed, but I think that she's not like as upset, I think, as she was with some of the stuff that has happened earlier in the season. And at that point, Max makes the, I think, wise decision to go hang out with Lucas on the roof. And I love this scene. She confides in him about missing her dad, being afraid of Billy, and not wanting to end up like Billy. And I can't say enough how much I like the way the relationship builds between these two. Also, side note, I think it's interesting that Max specifically calls Billy her brother while Billy said the thing earlier about don't call her my sister. So I thought that was kind of interesting that Max, I think, maybe wants that relationship to be a real brother-sister relationship. It just adds to the, to the, another layer of sadness to to what she's expressing in this moment. And I do. I, I just, I love this moment of connection between them because it's based on them actually having a heart-to-heart. And when she says, like, you know, I don't want to end up like Billy, Lucas is like, you're nothing like him. And he means it. I think he genuinely means that. I mean, we can see it. We can see that she's nothing like Billy. But it also, I think, makes sense that she might be afraid of that. And I love that the way Caleb McLaughlin plays that reaction of like, hey, no, you're like, you're nothing like him. It has a very like comforting and like affirming tone, energy, vibe to it. It doesn't feel like he's chastising her. And it also doesn't feel like he's giving her lip service. Like it feels very sincere. <laughs> Lucas isn't usually the type to, to BS, even in the interest of, <laughs> you know, maybe liking a girl and wanting her to like him back. Like it's not really his style. He's, he's very pragmatic. He's very direct, which is actually one of the things I think that makes them a really good couple because like they, they fit well together because they're both kind of that way. They're both, you know, straight shooters. <laughs> we'll see it later at the snowball, but when he kind of tries to be slick, it doesn't really work because that's not really his style. You know, I can't say enough how much I like the way their relationship builds, you know, before this, in this moment, and then from here. Now, to be fair, I also have to admit that some of this dialogue, like it though I do, it is a little clunk. It, it, it could have been a lot clunkier in the hands of a different director or different actors. But they just, their powers combined, they really make this bit shine. And a good chunk of what Max talks about here, her dad, her history with Billy, and sort of a lot of her like backstory and life in California, a lot of that is covered in the Runaway Max novel. And it's all easily the best part of that book. At the conclusion of this little romantic scene, though, fog rolls in to the junkyard and they all hear an unearthly shriek. Steve and Dustin pop up and look around and Lucas spies dart at the edge of the junkyard. I like how Dustin kind of calls out like, Lucas, you know, what do you see? What do you, what do you got? Just, you know, because that's exactly what Lucas is up there for. <laughs> Ranger on duty. And Lucas does. He spies dart at the edge of the junkyard. Max is still asking if they're sure that whatever he's looking at is not a dog. You know, I love the response from Lucas. What? But dart doesn't take the bait. Mm-mm. And Steve's line, maybe he's sick of cow, then precedes him to venture outside. <laughs> when Heidi and I watched this together, she she was she said, Steve, I love you, but you're an idiot. Which is basically what Max says, but Dustin then counters, he's awesome. Another little moment where it's establishing, I think, Dustin's admiration for Steve. Because can we just say it again, for the people in the back, this is a moment of bravery from Steve. 
Like, I agree with Heidi that he's kind of being stupid, but like, he does go out there armed. He does have a certain level of confidence because he's taken on a Demogorgon before. This is essentially the same setup as the first season, the, the trap that Jonathan and Nancy laid. And they cut themselves to draw the Demogorgon to them. Granted, there were two of them, not, not one and then three kids much younger than them. But still, I, I think this is a pretty significant moment of, of courage from Steve. There's a little bit of, of, uh, of dumbassery in, in play. Yes, I'm not going to ignore that. But also that's coming from a place of us knowing exactly what's going to happen and knowing how formidable the Demodogs are, how many of them there are. I don't know that if he had known there were two others in the junkyard, I don't know that he would have gone out there. I don't think he would have wanted to potentially put the others at risk. But just the one, I guess that puts uh, Heidi in the, the, the Max mindset here and me in the Dustin mindset. Awesome or not, the Demodogs, they surround Steve and Steve has to make a run for it. This is him also being like, okay, I'm outnumbered. I got I gotta jet back to the bus. And again, though, he doesn't explicitly lose this fight. He does get a few good swings in, and he does make it back to the bus unharmed. They don't actually get him at all. Steve and the kids manage to, like, barely barricade the door. One, however, hops on top of the bus. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be Dart or not, but one of them does hop up there, and Max gets a full view of it before Steve jumps in front of her, ready to fight it. Hard to say how that would have gone. I see this pop up on a lot of like Steve Steve Harrington appreciation posts where it's like, look at him jumping in front of her. Like, that's just great. It doesn't really matter because the monster stops. It turns and it bounds away along with its buddies. And in the surprise stillness that follows, Lucas and Max let go of one another's hands that they clasped at some point. Surprise, surprise. And then of course they, they look embarrassed. And the group slowly emerges from the bus, and Lucas asks, What happened? And Dustin theorizes that maybe Steve scared them off, but Steve disagrees. And he create, you know, and then of course we get one of the most common stills and gifts and probably memeable moments from season two, where Steve does this does the turnaround with the bat slung over his shoulder and he says, They're going somewhere. And that's where we leave them, because at that point, we swing back to the suited-up lab guys venturing into the tunnels, and they're led into an empty room as fog swirls in, just like it did in the junkyard. And just as one tech says, looks like your kid is full of shit, Doc, we cut back to the hospital room, where Will, crying, turns to Joyce and says, he made me do it. As Will is, is crying and saying this stuff, Mike figures out what's going on, and he shouts, the spy, and sprints down the hall, further shouting, it's a trap, I need to warn them. And that scene is intercut with the lab techs suddenly detecting incoming signals. And the lab guys, blinded by that fog, are ambushed and killed. Not unlike the blind cold open, we, and Hopper and Owens and the rest, don't see anything. We can only hear rapid gunfire and screaming, and can just helplessly watch the radar screens as all the signals disappear. The tone of that moment is more like tragic and sad we just lost a bunch of lives the chilling part comes next when will says that joyce should go now they're almost here and in our final shot hopper looks out through the survey window and an upside down-esque shape appears over the edge of the floor accompanied by what sounds an awful lot like a laughing screech i don't think it's supposed to be a laugh but that's what it's always sounded like to me and thus ends chapter six, The Spy. 
<laughs> first time watching this episode, my mind was spinning with the thought, they wouldn't massacre the entire lab, would they? Well, isn't lost for good, is he? And several repetitions of, what the fuck is happening? Final thoughts. I especially adore the tone, especially considering how much I've talked about it, not surprising. And just the way that, it, that it's balanced throughout. The fact that we get these very intense sequences with Will, Hopper, Joyce, and everyone at Hawkins' lab, but despite how bleak and sinister it all is, we get these lighter moments, these cutaways to Steve and Dustin, Nancy and Jonathan, and Lucas and Max. And not to say that I don't enjoy other episodes that linger on one particular storyline, like the next two, for example, but I find that I really enjoy this back and forth, particularly with the way it's ramping up to the big bombshell of a conclusion. I mean, it's kind of a literal cliffhanger. And more importantly, these tonal shifts never feel too jarring or off-putting. They never swing too hard in one direction or away from one another. So it never feels like we're lingering too long with any one group. Or simultaneously that we aren't getting enough time with one group. Even though I'm always eager for more of the storylines. But yeah, the season has largely been a slow burn. Even this episode creating a gradual buildup. But I would argue that this is the point where it really charges forward. We've had a few tense moments with Hopper in the tunnels and all the stuff of Will being slowly possessed, his visions, the stuff with Billy and Max in the car. But apart from the opening sequence with Kali, the junkyard stuff is really our first proper action sequence, followed by the ambush of the lab guys. But even that is mostly hidden, implied action, because we don't see most of it. It's primarily sound design and the reactions of the folks at the monitors. But we do get to see Steve face off with the demodogs. And realizing what's happening all at once, yeah, huge lurch forward. Which I think is also, just by comparison, is part of what makes it feel particularly exciting, I guess. It works. I really think it works. So with that said... That will conclude contemplation on Chapter 6, The Spy. Next time will be the episode that you've all been waiting for, the infamous, much-aligned Lost Sister. Ready thyselves for some controversial opinions. Until then, though, thank you very much for listening, as always. And if you've got comments, questions, thoughts, join the conversation. Find Coffee and Contemplation on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Coffee and Contemplation is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many more. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, over and out.